You are listening to Gritch Fridge, a podcast by the Mortgage Center for Public Service at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Gritch Fridge is a podcast that holds food for thought, hence the name. Gritch Fridge is dedicated to connecting community, campus, and student voices that foster, shape, and cultivate a thriving democratic society. I'm your host, Lane Bottomiller. Welcome to our February episode, and also our first episode of second semester. I was thinking about it, and I always say things about like semesters or breaks that happen on the UW-Madison calendar, but the more I think about it, definitely not everyone listening to this runs on the UW-Madison schedule, so maybe I should stop doing that. I suppose I am a student, so maybe it makes sense, like it's my second semester. Whatever. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to the month of February and second semester. This episode centers around a conversation I had with Dr. Elise Ahn, the founding director of the International Projects Office and lecturer in educational policy at UW-Madison. Elise studies language, linguistics, and education policy. Previously, Elise also lectured at Kimep University in Kazakhstan. The International Projects Office, or IPO, globalizes the Wisconsin idea through international projects and partnerships. This can look like capacity building at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan, or partnering with different countries through the United Nations to address COVID-19. Beyond the work accomplished by these UW-Madison programs, internationalizing the university is a chance for valuable person-to-person connections, we find out in this episode. Keep listening to learn about mutually beneficial international relationships at UW, and how learning new languages, despite being intimidating, is a chance to build connections and foster inclusion in education. Well, hello, welcome to Gridge Fridge. I'll just have you start off by introducing yourself, give us your name, pronouns, a little bit about your background and then your current position. Sure, um, so my name is Elise Ahn. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, I am originally a Chicago, I'm a Chicagoan who kind of has been here in Madison since about fall of 2016. And I am currently the director of the International Projects Office, which is in the International Division, as well as a lecturer in the Educational Policy Studies Department. Awesome, thank you. What led you to pursue your current position at the International Projects Office? Before coming to Wisconsin, I was a faculty member at a university in Kazakhstan. And when I was moving back to the States, uh, basically had an opportunity to do some consulting work for um, UW-Madison's partnership with Nazarbayev University, which is a university in Kazakhstan. Um, And around that same time, there was some interest in possibly kind of developing more projects that were similar to the NU partnership. And so um, I was invited to apply, went through the application process, and uh, was hired in December of 2016. I had the privilege to be the founding director of, of the office, but it was a little bit of a kind of a curvy road, um, but the through line being uh, having worked in, in Kazakhstan. And then what made you want to work and study abroad? Is that always something you knew you're interested in? I, you know, my, I'm a first-generation immigrant. Like, my, my parents were first-generation immigrants, so come from an immigrant family. So had a lot of connections to family in South Korea. So grew up kind of um, traveling a lot in terms of visiting family, et cetera. So always felt comfortable traveling. And then as I grew older, I think just kind of being really curious about the world and wanting to kind of see the world and my work through different lenses, um, I became interested in Kazakhstan specifically because in graduate school, I was um, I became I was doing some work around Turkey and. And then towards the end of graduate school, became interested in kind of Turkey's relationship to Central Asia, specifically the Central Asian countries that used to be part of the former Soviet Union. And so, yeah, when come time for graduation, there was a position that was opened up in that had opened up in Kazakhstan, applied, was fortunate enough to get the position 
and started expanding my research to include that context as well. So again, a little bit of a kind of intersection of the personal in terms of already being pretty comfortable with like wanting to learn from a lot of different perspectives, but then specifically Kazakhstan uh, was an interest because of uh, my graduate school. Right. Working globally brings a whole new perspective, like you said. And how has that changed the way that you think about your research and areas of study now? I think in the big picture, doing work or engaging in research and also living in the context where I was doing research provided an interesting lens to see kind of the things that I was researching. So for example, one of the areas of, of work that I do is in language and education policy. And, you know, you can look at language and education policy strictly from kind of a policy perspective. And so you think that you have a pretty good sense of like, this is how policies are formed. This is the impact on different types of communities. But I think when you work in institutions in a context and you see the day to day, and then you also kind of meet people who are navigating the school system or their kids are navigating the school system. It provides a different perspective on, you know, how those language and education policies are actually experienced on the ground or how change happens. So I think, you know, in one sense, I feel like it provides kind of a more nuanced understanding from a research standpoint. And then it also, I think, in the bigger picture helps me to have kind of a posture of, I guess, a, a certain amount of humility coming into context because it's like, it starts from a position of like, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know. There are so many things that I don't. So starting from that position, I think is helpful in terms of being able to ask questions and just in general, just start building relationships. So kind of, I guess that's a little bit more meta, but I think um, living and working abroad kind of has that, that kind of influence on my research. So kind of rewinding to what you were talking about a little bit earlier, can you just tell us a little bit about UW-Madison's connection to Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan? Yeah, yeah, sure. UW's partnership with Nazarbayev University, Akla Anyu, definitely predates uh, me coming here. The partnership actually started back in, even before it was a partnership in 2009, 2010, with there was a delegation that was tasked by the um, then president of Kazakhstan to um, basically kind of like go out into the world and find um, institutions that would serve as kind of a model in some ways for this new startup university. And so among the institutions that um, this delegation visited, UW-Madison was one of them. Um, and that was um, in part because of, um, of a faculty member named Yulai Shamiolu, who was in the Asian Studies Department. And so they came, the delegation came to UW and had like a series of different types of meetings. Um, and really at the time, the idea was, you know, what do you need when you start up a university? You need faculty, you need research, you need programs. So the focus was really there. But when they came to UW-Madison, they also had meetings with uh, folks from um, academic advising, from um, student service, the dean of students office, from around, from general library services. And the delegation was like, hey, you know what? Actually, we really need to think about the broader ecosystem in which our students are going to be coming into. And so that was kind of the beginning of UW-Madison's engagement with Nazarbayev University back in 2010. And, you know, UW has really contributed and provided expertise around like a variety of different areas, like those that I mentioned in terms of academic advising or career advising, alumni engagement, library services, communication, even thinking in terms of like really weedsy things like who gets to sign on behalf of the university? So it's called signing authority. Or, and of course, like 
our um, strategic partner, our main strategic partner is the School of Sciences um, and Humanities, which is kind of their equivalent of LNS. And so, um, you know, we've provided support in the early years around developing departments. How do you do international hiring um, that's transparent and rigorous? How do you kind of cultivate um, faculty expertise? A lot of our, um, a number of our senior faculty members here at UW have mentored junior faculty members through the ranks over there, um, as well as thinking about, you know, how do you become, even like navigate your career as a faculty member from becoming from a junior faculty member to, you know, a faculty leader. So uh, UW has really contributed a lot to, I think, the startup phase of um, Nazarbayev University. And, um, and, 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 and likewise, we've like learned a lot from um, the process as well over the course of, you know, the last 14 years. Um, but, um, but those are some of the ways that we've been able to inter interact as well as uh, in, in the space of student mobility. So I think um, we've had several hundred NU students come here uh, as part of the um, VIS program, the Visiting International Student Program, in the summer. So from 2014 to 2019, uh, we've had I think a couple hundred students come, kind of get a sense of what Madison is like in the summer, which is a lovely time to be here, and uh, you know participate in courses and, and really interact with UW faculty as well. So um, it's been a really great opportunity to kind of uh, facility a lot of different connections around like different campus stakeholders. And then as you've worked at the IPO, how have you seen the partnership with NU evolve through time? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, like I said, in the beginning, it, it really, it was a startup university. And so, you know, we were providing a lot of consultation around like the, the foundational policies and protocols that you need to be able to start a university, like hiring or uh, program development, degree development, so on and so forth. But I mean, over time, you know, they have um, experienced cadres of faculty, they have experienced administrators, they have um, alumni that are now also working at the institution. They have alumni who are like all over the world, including here at UW as PhD students, et cetera. And so inevitably as an institution matures, like your relationship kind of changes too. So we see more, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that we're, we're gonna really facilitate more faculty to faculty collaboration. That's something that we're really hoping to see kind of as the partnership matures. But also, I think as UW's um, staff and faculty have been interacting with their counterparts in Kazakhstan, they've also been learning. Like we've facilitated, you know, a number of UW folks being able to go to Kazakhstan, which um, isn't, you know, kind of necessarily on the beaten path. And so, you know, that's a really great opportunity to see a different part of the world. And then by doing that, uh, really learn from each other about like, what are the challenges? Like, so for example, in academic advising, you know, what are the challenges that students are facing trying to navigate your institution, you know, whether that's on the NU side or the UW side, there's that kind of similarity or overlap in terms of some of the experiences, and then also being able to learn from each other. So I think that's been really cool to see that, like moving from kind of just consulting to kind of more mutual learning. I think that's really, um, that's been one real value add, I think, for both institutions. Right, like a reciprocal learning relationship. Yeah, definitely. So I know earlier you kind of mentioned the International Projects Office. Can you just give us a little bit of a rundown about what that office is all about and give us an example of a project other than NU? Yeah, definitely. Um, so our office kind of serves as like a, a hub in a, in a way. Um, and so, I mean, UW-Madison has so many different units, so many resources, so many faculties with different types of expertise. And the challenge sometimes can be to how do you bring that together in a way that 
the university can respond quickly. So our office serves to uh, bring together, you know, uh, whether it's units or faculty that cross two or more um, schools or colleges or, or, or units and essentially kind of develop projects that have that type of multidisciplinary or require that kind of multidisciplinary expertise. Um, and so that work is not in the research arena because faculty, of course, like kind of conduct interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary research all the time. Um, but this is really specifically focusing on things like capacity building or like training, um, system strengthening, kind of consultation um, in that domain. Um, so, for example, an example of um, a project that we convened was during COVID. Um, so this is kind of during the lockdown phase of COVID in 2020, 2021. And, you know, no one could travel. And there was a, there were PPE shortages all around the world. And in actually through um, through the student Engineers Without Borders group here at UW-Madison, we were connected with um, an office within the U United Nations Development Program, which was trying to connect expertise to different local UNDP um, offices, um, essentially to kind of try to figure out virtual ways of providing technical consultation in different countries um, according to different needs um, that were determined by, by COVID or because of COVID. And so we were able to kind of bring together 14 different faculty members across a number of different schools and colleges, uh, ranging from like in school, school of human ecology and textile expertise, the chemistry and like ventilators and um, the, the maker space and thinking about kind of PPE production, so on and so forth, and um, connect that expertise with specific, specific needs in places like Yemen, in Kyrgyzstan, in Sudan, in Guatemala, uh, and a num in a number of other countries as well. And so our office function is a hub to bring and to convene all these experts um, so that if UNDP is like, hey, we have this country office that needs, um, you know, a textile expert in, in mask production, we could ask, you know, two or three of the faculty members, they'd be willing to kind of provide their expertise um, to this, uh, this, um, this country office and then make that connection. And so um, that was something that we were really proud of, especially because it required rapid response and um, really showcases, I think, this um, the, the underlying ethic of our office, which is really trying to embody the Wisconsin idea in this type of global internationally engaged work. Um, and so, you know, especially during kind of a time of real uncertainty and crisis and constraints since no one could travel. And then transitioning to talk about language, I know you have experience studying different languages and things like that. What interested you in this area of study? Well, I, you know, like I said earlier, uh, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family, and so I grew up speaking um, Korean at home. And I think at a pretty early age, I learned that language was really essential to, like, basic issues of access. Um, and so I think that was something that really, you know, made an impression early on. And then I remember my, like, this is kind of a like family anecdote, but our dad is um, a really committed language learner. And so he would always be like, you know, try to learn a language, try to learn like a major language on every continent so that wherever you go, you have some point of connection because language is so critical to building relationships. I have not reached that goal yet, but, um, but I think that was really formative for me because it was like, oh, language is really essential to connecting with people, you know? And so that was kind of something that, you know, really made an impression. And then, you know, in graduate school or in undergrad and graduate school, I studied linguistics. 
which kind of helped facilitate that interest in languages and then, you know, just kind of kept on with it. My language kind of learning journey was a little bit meandering because like I thought that, you know, in the field of linguistics, like learning uh, different types of African languages was really kind of a big activity at one point. So I was like learning Swahili and then I became learning um, Chinese. And so I was learning Chinese for a semester, but, but now I'm like kind of squarely in Turkic language. So um, settle there. Yeah. So can you give us a one minute like rundown of, I guess, linguistics or like language learning, some of the lessons you've learned there? You know, language learning is hard. Um, that's something that I talk about. I was going to say, I've got like, you've got like three languages down. I have like one and a half, barely one. I don't know. I'm a journalism major, so hopefully I have English down at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, language learning is hard. It's really humbling because I think, you know, people grow up with like the languages that they use. And then, you know, it's you feel really vulnerable when you're learning right. a language because you kind of feel like, oh, I can say, you know, X, Y and Z so much better in this other language. Right. But I appreciate, again, kind of the, that phase uh, because it's really humbling. And it's kind of a good reminder that, you know, people are not the sum of their linguistic ability as well. I think sometimes today when we meet someone that, like, I can't connect to or like, I can't communicate with, it sometimes affects, like, how we see them as a person. We're not defined even by our linguistic ability. And understanding that uh, language learning is hard for me helps me really keep that in mind um, in terms of like how I interface with like other people. So that's kind of a small thing that I take away from language learning. But of course, like there's different strategies. I think it's always like something is always better than nothing. Right now I'm like preparing for a trip to, to France and like really trying to be committed to studying French on Duolingo, which requires me learning a lot about cats for some reason. Yes, that and apples, I feel like is always what it tends to be. Yeah, the cats... <laughs> Cats. And, and in Russian, it's horses. I don't know why. Like different languages use different uh, um, animals as references. Mm. Russian is horses uh, and cats, actually. But in French, it's definitely a lot of cats. Um, and But, you know, I think it's like a little bit is better than nothing. And uh, again, like my dad's approach has always been kind of like if you spend five minutes doing it over the course of a lifetime, that winds up being a lot. So, um, again, I've, I've really appreciated that perspective in regards to language learning. Right, 100%. And I think, so both my younger sister and I both did Spanish all through high school. Mm. And I feel like there's also that sense of like nervousness. It's like sometimes I'd rather just like speak in English rather than even mm -hmm. try and do Spanish because you don't want to, you don't want to feel like a fool and like mess up and be mm -hmm. like, oh, what if they think I'm so awful? But also I think people so appreciate any attempt to learn somebody else's language too. Definitely. Which is like, uh, that's always what I have to, what I feel like is important to think about that people appreciate that you're putting in any effort and that you're just trying regardless, regardless of how perfect your grammar is or anything. Yeah, I think so. And also I think it's also kind of a posture too. Like I want to meet you where you are, you know? Right. And so even if that means that I make myself vulnerable, right? Because I don't, you know, I may not be representing the way myself the way that I feel like I would want to be represented, but I still want to meet you where you are in that sense. And so I think that aspect of kind of like, other centeredness, I think, is really beneficial in that language learning, language learning kind of process and good for all of us, you know, in terms of kind of tr just trying to like meet other people where they're at. Right. OK, so now kind of moving on from our language, but I guess I suppose not. We're talking about internationalization. So I saw that you edited a piece about that was called the Interna internationalization of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean? So actually, the, the full book title was Wisconsin, is Wisconsin in the World, mm -hmm. um, Internationalization at, at, U, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
And so um, this book was actually an, an opportunity. So it was an opportunity that, that we had during kind of like 2021 COVID um, to take a step back and like really think through like, what does it like? What is the work that we're doing across campus um, around global engagement, internationalization, and what um, does a future look like? And so we had forty-one. The book has forty-one chapters, a, uh, thirty-four of which are you know UW units, programs, initiatives, et cetera, and capture a lot of different efforts on campus. Um, so we do have a number of chapters from like study abroad, from international internships, from uh, internationalization of the curriculum. So these areas that come to mind when we think about internationalization, but it's also things like um, different types of partnerships. So community engagement, outreach, thinking about how does, how do, for example, the different international area study centers, how do they engage with providing support for K-12 educa educators like throughout the state of Wisconsin? You know, how is, how are these different units really kind of supporting the state and in, in service of, of the broader context. And so um, the book really does, I think, a great job of, or my colleagues actually did a great job of capturing, I think, the different ways that they're engaging with um, not just the local community, but also state stakeholders, also connecting state stakeholders with um, sister cities. So there's a chapter uh, about the University of Guadalajara partnership uh, with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which goes back 50 years. And it's so nuanced and multifaceted and one of the things that came out of that was a sister city connection with another city in Wisconsin and how that impacted like educators as well as, you know, K-12 students there. So I think the book itself does a really provides a, a pretty robust cross section of um, how uh, Wisconsin or how UW-Madison units, people, projects, initiatives are really trying to kind of provide those person to person connections. And so that's really, I think, kind of the end message. That ultimately, you know, you have programs, you have initiatives, et cetera, but it really is that person-to-person -person connection right. and thinking about how the university could work in such a way to provide those person-to-person -person connections is really kind of at the heart of that. So then, and this might be kind of similar to things that we've talked about before, but um, I was thinking when I was looking at the Nazarbayev like page mm -hmm. on, or like I on, I guess it was our page, but it was about our partnership with them. Mm -hmm. And I saw the phrase globalizing the Wisconsin idea, and that really stuck with me and was something I wanted to focus on here mm -hmm. today. So can you just tell us like how you've seen the Wisconsin idea globalized through the IPO? One of the things that, you know, I, I am a graduate of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, so another flagship, another land grant. Um, and certainly there's a commitment to kind of the, you know, the land grant mission. Um, but I think one thing as a Chicago transplant here, I've been really struck by is this commitment to the Wisconsin idea and the idea of connecting kind of the expertise of the university and that the university should be in service of the state. The idea of globalizing that Wisconsin idea, I think, is kind of twofold. One is definitely trying to expand that idea of service. And so connecting the expertise of the University of Wisconsin-Madison to other constituencies, um, you know, around the world. There's that aspect of it. And certainly, I think, thinking about a new the, the NU partnership and kind of particularly the startup phase or some of the other partnerships that IPO facilitates um, in terms of the capacity building and training piece, we see that. That's, I feel like that kind of is like living out part of that aspect of the Wisconsin idea. But I also think that part of it is collectively thinking about what is the role of the university and how can we be in service of our local community. It's been really interesting to think about, for example, in um, certain post-colonial contexts where they have different 
um, histories or legacies of higher education, the idea of the university serving the local community is not part of its legacy. You know, it's not part of the kind of the value system driving those universities because that wasn't kind of the value or the kind of like the under the philosophical underpinning of the university in that particular context. So it's been really interesting to then talk about how can the university, how can all universities be in service of the local community? And so I think, you know, even here at UW, I think as we rethink kind of what the Wisconsin idea means in the 21st century, what does a more inclusive idea of the Wisconsin idea look like? It's a collective conversation that it's great to have with partners um, who are overseas, who come from different um, higher education traditions. So I think that's kind of the second piece of the globalizing the Wisconsin idea aspect. On the one hand, there's kind of the service piece, but I think the second aspect of that is this kind of collectively rethinking, you know, what does a more inclusive vision look like? How can other institutions be in service of their local constituencies, you know, and how can we be kind of like growing as institutions and as people kind of through that process, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And then I know you've said earlier too, like through these partnerships, UW-Madison has learned so much. Like it's, it's a reciprocal relationship. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about like what you've witnessed in that area? You know, one of the things that I was really excited to see, and this was um, several years ago, but um, for example, you know, we had colleagues in the writing center at UW provide a lot of consultation and kind of um, strategic planning support for the writing studies program at, uh, at NU. And our writing center folks were kind of doing this in partnership with the ESL department or ESL program here. Now, prior to the NU partnership, even though these units were run by folks who had been here for like over 20 years, they had never collaborated at all. And so through the partnership, they you know got together, they were talking, and actually they hired um, a multilingual kind of a writing tutor that focused on kind of like multilingual language um, users. And so that in the field is actually quite unusual, but that was really cool to see in terms of, you know, as they were learning from the experiences of colleagues at NU, it was also then informing how they could better serve students here at UW. Um, so there's other examples of that too, in terms of, you know, folk colleagues at like in the Dean of Students office or in UHS, you know, thinking about how do we better serve um, even like our international student community here on campus. Um, based on some of the observations that they were making there, um, whether it's around programming or support, et cetera. So those are some of the areas that I think it's been really neat, like practically to see right. um, some kind of collaboration and mutual learning. And then, of course, I think thinking about, you know, faculty and faculty research, you know, that's that's a dialogue that's happening. And so um, seeing faculty kind of engage in that space, too, it's really cool to see. Yeah. And then you also teach Ed Paul 205. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what this course is about? Course, yeah. Course, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, Ed Paul 205 um, is called Language and Social Inequality. And the course really focuses on this intersection between language and kind of the systems in the world around us, specifically within the education system. So the course is kind of divided into three parts. The first part, we focus on um, establishing different types of language concepts. What are the big ideas? Things like language ideology, for example, which is kind of um, you know, the belief system, the system that kind of ties together um, language uses, language speakers, and, and systems. Um, the second part, like kind of sec the second third, focuses on um, plurilingual pedagogies. So not just kind of thinking about how does language con contribute to systems of inequality, but how can we, as whether pre-service teacher educators 
or people who are going into the workplace, how can we approach um, kind of engaging with people in a more inclusive way? And then the third um, part is really kind of thinking from a policy standpoint. So how do we see all these different types of things like feeding into language systems, whether it's thinking about uh, debates in school districts or referendums, et cetera. So the course itself is kind of divided into these three parts. And then the through line there is that because it is a community-based learning course, students are engaging with community partners in kind of applying this type of language lens. Most students are either tutoring or mentoring, you know, K-12 students. But some students are working in law clinics and, um, you know, working with different communities that might have multilingual backgrounds and are figuring out how to navigate the legal system where, where English might not be their first language. And so even applying a, a language lens in that context and thinking about how to facilitate greater access for different, different members of the community, that's kind of one of the different sites that folks can kind of engage at. So those are, you know, and, and the community-based learning piece allows students to be able to then apply what they're learning in class in these different contexts to kind of see how does language affect our access? Because I think oftentimes when we think about inequality, we don't think about language, but I would make the case, and I make the case in the class that language is actually really foundational to structuring and shaping inequality because it kind of creates this like really foundational constraint or way of seeing the world uh, or navigating the world that is really critical. So um, that's kind of the argument that I'm making. And then, you know, hopefully throughout the course, students are kind of becoming more aware of that. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have any stories from your students of how like going out into the community and partnering with different organizations has changed their learning or like enhanced their learning? Yeah, I think so. For example, I think one example that comes to mind last year, one of the students was in a classroom. So she was kind of serving as a teacher's aide. And um, the class actually was predominantly kind of monolingual English language speakers. But there was one one student who was like new to the country and didn't speak any English. And so for this student, or for the UW student, it was really interesting for her to see how the teacher treated the student in light of what we were talking about in class. So for example, one of the ways that um, sometimes students become disadvantaged in classrooms is that they're kind of trying to do two things at once. So for example, they might be learning English and they also have to learn math, in which case sometimes uh, what ha happens is their math ability and performance is gauged on their English language ability. And so then it's like, oh, this person is a low performer in math, when in reality, they might just not understand right. what's happening. Right. And so what um, this UW student was able to see was actually, yes, the student became like doubly disadvantaged in a way in the class because the teacher didn't have the capacity and the resources to be able to provide adequate support for the student. And so then the student just wound up kind of increasingly falling behind in math because they were just giving worksheets to do. Worksheets that actually the student actually didn't really understand what to do with either. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of conversations, or we had some conversations throughout the course of the semester about how um, the UW student could engage and support the student and with a limited, uh, with this person's limited language background. And so, you know, just even how in small ways you can create a more inclusive environment. And so I think that was, I mean, helpful for the person to see because otherwise, yeah, like you, it's, it makes a lot of sense you, that that would be the case. Um, and it's another thing when you actually see this happening to this like six-year-old, you know, six-year-old student in front of you. And then you think, 
oh yeah, like this is what's happening. How do I make this situation? I don't know if like better is a word, but how can I provide a better learning experience or support the student um, while also understanding kind of the classroom dynamics? And also how does this inform my um, approach towards teaching moving forward? So now I just have some kind of fun questions if Mm -hmm. you're up for them. Okay, of the languages you speak, are there any words that exist that you don't have in English and that you wish existed in English? I was thinking about this question. Yeah, I mean, so there, there, like Korean has a lot of really, um, it's a very affective language. This is not a technical term, but there's like a lot of words that have kind of really good emotional weight. Yeah. Um, but, and I think Zai might know this word, but actually, can I like mention you? Are you? I'm breaking the fourth wall. I'm Zai breaking, does our sound, by the way, I'm guys. <laughs> Um, but, uh, like, for example, there's this word, and I was just thinking of this, um, there's this word called nunchi. It's a word in Korean. It kind of has a lot of different, um, layers to it. It's kind of like situational awareness, like gut, gut feeling, sense, kind of sense of appropriateness. Um, it is something that as a child, you hear a lot from your parents. There's a great article about nunchi and a book, I think, um, that was written off of the article in the New York Times. But it's a great, I think, term to capture sometimes, like, you know, um, this kind of multifaceted sense. So, yeah. But if anyone's interested in the concept of nunchi, you can Google it uh, at the New York Times, N-O-O-N-B-H-I. Okay, beautiful. And then what's a place that you haven't visited yet that you would like to go? I really want to go to Malta. Okay. Malta is on my bucket list. It's a really fascinating place because it's kind of convergence of four different of empires and languages and um you know it's like right in the middle of the mediterranean and so i think that's kind of next on my bucket list okay and of the places you've seen what's been your favorite i have family in korea and um i lived in kazakhstan so those are places that are near and dear to my heart i will say though that new zealand is probably one of the the my favorite places to travel to just because it's a small place but it's quite um, topographically and geographically diverse from top to, to bottom and so it's hard to pick one i would say though that from a one-stop shop type of perspective, um, New Zealand is probably one of my favorite places. And then what advice do you have for listeners or students that might want to work or study abroad? Yeah, I mean, you know, UW-Madison has a lot of resources uh, in, re- in relation to study abroad. I would really, I would be remiss in not kind of pointing folks to um, IAP, the International Academic Programs Office, um, to for like for not only the, the different types of programming that they offer, but also things like scholarships. So the idea of being able to study abroad and have some funding to be able to help support that, that's amazing. It's an amazing resource um, that UW has. Um, There's also, um, you know, within the schools and colleges, different programs that also uh, are specific to, you know, different types of majors. So I really encourage um, students to check out the resources that are available through international academic programs. Um, But also, I mean, just the international division in general, like the area studies centers, have um, weekly brown bags and talks and stuff. And it's a great way to not only get connected to expertise on campus, but learn about like what's happening around the world. And it's really, I think, um, less frequently utilized resource that's on campus. So highly encourage folks to come out to those events as well. Oftentimes there's free lunch. So, you know, it's hard to say no to that. Right, exactly. uh, Definitely check that out. Um, A lot of the information is available on the, or linked off of the international division website, which is just international.wis.edu, so people can check that out as well. Thanks, Elise, for joining us. 
If you want to learn more about the International Projects Office and related partnerships, you can visit projects.international.wisc.edu. Learn more about UW-Madison's International Division and how you can become more globally aware at international.wisc.edu. Stay connected to all things Mortgage Center at Mortgage Center on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for tuning into Gridge Fridge, and we hope to see or talk to you next time.